Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. Today, I chat with Jerry Mikulski, who is hard to pin down as a person. It's not like he went to MIT or started Wikipedia or anything like that. But he's his. I was in, super impressed by his style of thinking throughout the show, and every minute essentially took a great mimetic phrase for how we as society can contribute to the public commons in a positive way. So highly recommended, and excited for you to check out this episode. Thanks. Hello, fellow pluralists. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and welcome to the Reese Show. This century is a turning point in human history, and I'm here to help you navigate it. I hope you come away with a new understanding of the scientific, technological, and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world, and how you can work with those trends to become a live player in building a solar punk future. And to chat about that, today I'm excited to chat with Jerry Mikulski. Jerry is working to curate this collective shared memory through many things that he does, one of which is this community called Open Global Mind, and the other is this amazing site, like a Wikipedia, but his own version of it called Jerry's Brain. Uh, So Jerry, thanks for being on the show and welcome. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, excited to dive in. And yeah, Jerry and I were chatting about, well, one cool thing is when I pinged Jerry for the uh, the show, I was like, hey, Jerry, do you want to like chat about some of these, you know, collective global memory stuff? He's like, that'd be great. Also, by the way, you're in my Jerry's brain. And so and, he, and I was there as part of this like systems thinking game B world or whatever. So maybe Jerry, do you want to say a little bit about what is Jerry's brain and and what exists in there? Sure. So for whoever's, whoever's watching or listening, you can go to jerrysbrain.com and click on the little text link that says launch Jerry's Brain. It should pop open a new tab and you'll see this weird little mind map on a blue background. I was on their first press tour 24 and a half years ago. So back then I was writing a monthly paper newsletter for Esther Dyson that we also published on Lotus Notes. That was kind of you know pioneering back in the day. I know. Um, and one of the th- for 3,000 odd startups that pitched me in the dozen years I was doing that kind of work had a product called The Brain. And I remember making the appointment going, The Brain, whatever. And then I remember when the inventor opened his laptop, his name is Harlan, and I, I looked over his shoulder at this little mind map and I was like, and he started using it just, I don't know, three clicks in, my wet brain on board says, wow, this is how I think. And so I started using the tool, wrote about them in our newsletter, not knowing that 24 years later, the file that you will go see if you click on that link to launch Jerry's Brain is the same data file that I started 24 and a half years ago. And just three weeks ago, I passed the half million thought mark, which means I have more than a half million nodes in that one mind map. So I'm not in Guinness or anything, but I sort of should be because I've got the world's largest one person, man made, personally curated mind map. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, that, and, and it, that is, I love that feeling when you see something. And especially for you in like early internet days, you like start to see something like, oh my God, I've been doing this visual thinking and connecting. And it's like, oh, and I remember first seeing Prezi or whatever and being like, oh, Prezi, yes, you have three dimensions and you can zoom in and out. And so, and that's amazing. Five, um, 500 mil- or 500,000 notes. Uh, what are, what determines whether something makes it into Jerry's brain? How does it connect to building a second brain and like Rome and stuff? And how do you kind of do your own knowledge management? Sure. Thanks. 
Um, so it's relatively simple. Um, I, I, there's sort of two audiences I have in mind. One is me, because <clears throat> at the beginning, there, I couldn't publish my brain out, so it was just for me. It was a personal uh, uh, memory tool. But then once I could start publishing publicly, then I was like, oh, okay, what's worth remembering in general? And also, how do I create editorial within the limits of this tool so that other people coming in who don't have all my story or background might make sense of it? And it's not perfect and, and, and so forth. But then the question is when something, you know, there's, we're, we're all drowning in the info torrent <clears throat> and most of us don't have a place to put stuff. So I ask people who sees anything worth remembering on the internet every day and everybody holds their hand up. And then my second question is, and where do you put it? And everybody grimaces and groans and chuckles because that's horrible. So the next question for me is, hey, here's an interesting nugget. Is it worth remembering? And it turns out if you do the math, there's 50 or 60 things that float by me every day that are worth remembering, and I curate them quickly into my brain, which is maybe 30 seconds to a minute if it's a simple thing. Um, might be longer if it turns into, oh, this is connected to this, and then it's like a little rabbit hole where, <clears throat> where I learn about how many inquisitions there were or whatever other sort of thing that you know, you know, came up. And I'm, I'm unfortunately I'm curious about everything, just absolutely everything. So once things pass the threshold, then it's like, where does it go? What do I call it? What else do I connect it to? And, and then I sort of pause for a second. But the act of doing all those things refreshes the memory of it in the wet brain I have on board. So instead of having this thing watch what I'm doing and automatically on the side map and, 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 and do stuff that I don't watch or see, the, the, my act of manually curating in the brain actually helps my memory. So I love that. And I don't want to have some AI assistant automatically do all this stuff. I would like to have an AI assistant go, hey, Jerry, it looks like you just put you know, Sue Halpern's new book in your brain. Here's two other books she wrote. Okay, if I add them. And then I add no metadata to my brain, not because I hate metadata, because it takes extra clicks. So if, an, if a little AI said, oh, and by the way, I've tagged that up so that she's an author of, and the books are written by, and those are known as books, and you can then search on meta, that would be just totally awesome. So that's kind of how those things fit. And I have my own little workflow that I've kind of just described. It's like stuff flows by in all the different media that we check every day, whether it's TweetDeck or you know, your, your Twitter stream, you know, whatever. Uh, we have way too many flows that we're drowning in, but I have a place to pluck out the good stuff and then put it together with older good stuff about the same topics, which almost nobody has that experience. And I, I have to just come back and emphasize that because the fact that almost nobody is curating a long lasting memory um, means I'm having some kind of weird outlier uh, experience here where when I come back to a topic I've curated for a long time, I have the best of. It's like the top 10 about income inequality in the U.S., the top 10 about racism in America with 15 different subcategories, all that kind of stuff. Love it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a really, I mean, I love what you said at the beginning there, which is to imagine that everybody's like, oh yeah, I see all, all kinds of cool stuff on the internet today. That's kind of what the internet is optimized for is something that feels like it's cool in the moment. Uh, right. And then the question though is like, okay, where do you store it? Or how is that useful for you later? Or how does that compound into other knowledge? And that is like, yeah, very, very little on that side. And I guess just for our listeners who aren't aware, there's this um, 
whole world of folks, which honestly, and Jerry, it sounds like you were one of the very first people who was like deep down this rabbit hole is the whole world of like, you know, the, the meme for this is like, um, you know, uh, personal knowledge management, PKM, or building a second brain, which is a specific version of things, or the whole like Rome research, Rome cult version, where people are trying to understand and consume stuff from the internet and then put it in their own, not just their brain, but their own second brain as like this way to kind of cross-reference their data and understand things. I, I, Jerry, I have a question for you, which is, well, I also, I, I really love what you said about the AI assistant piece. It reminds me of, um, there's a guy whose name I'm forgetting right now who, who talks about how so many things that we have in the world should just like automatically get the links kind of added to them. And that this AI assistant, we want it to kind of, we don't want it to do the the process for us the, mm-hmm. of, of like searching, but we want to like give us more things. How do you think for me, I've, I, I like, I use Rome and stuff, but I don't, I'm not, I, I, the main thing I use is Anki as like space repetition software and stuff. T- have you used Anki or how do you think about the Anki process? The closest I've come to space repetition is Duolingo. Yeah. Um, and now I tried, what's the flashcard software called? Um, Ico or something on- like that. Say it again. Uh, Ico. Uh, there's Anki, A-N-K-I. Oh, Anki. Oh, you pronounced it Anki. Sorry. You're, you're in fact talking about the one I'm uh, uh, thinking about, except yeah. you, I pronounced it Anki. Yeah, uh, Anki, so Anki, Anki. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so I have, I've, I, I never created a deck of flashcards to go, to go sort of uh, create for myself. But I love, I'm having this untimed space repetition experience in the brain. Yeah. Because when I go add something or show somebody else a section, it reinforces, uh, you know, it, it stops the decay of that memory in my brain. So um, what the brain could do that would be useful would be to have a timer of some sort that says, hey, for these important things, bring them back into my field of attention every X period of time. And then we'd be you know, off to the races. Yeah, love it. Yeah, but uh, I think there is... Okay. And, and there's a whole series of little communities like Tuttle Custom is a, is a big community that are, that are working on slip, slip cards with a little indexing system. Um, and, and Rome research, there's like the cult of Rome. <clears throat> and then there are Rome spinoffs and knockoffs. So have you seen LogSeq? I have, yep. So LogSeq is open source. Really, really interesting, right? Exactly. And, and Rome is not. Um, Athens is kind of like a Rome knockoff that's open source, but going in a different... And part of the problem is that these communities aren't talking to each other. Another problem is that we each have quirks and preferences about how we represent ideas and how we think. And so... There's a bunch of people for whom they look at the brain and like, ah, this just looks like a screen full of mess to me. Uh, my wife has a calendric memory. It's as if she had her calendar open in front of her in her mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I did last week without looking at my digital calendar. So how do we accommodate for different people's preferences? How do we help them find their way to super productive workflows? How do we encourage them to share what they find into the commons? Which very few people do, except for like bloggers and tweeters who are just dripping stuff that it's not a context, right? Um, and then how do we make that um, all more fruitful so that we know what we know? I love that. No, I think there's so many juicy things there where it's like for the individuals themselves, how do we make it so that it's not just a feed of, you know, 60 minutes of TikTok every day that then you literally cannot remember any of it a week later. And um, how can you make it so that as we're all traversing through these things and like adding stuff to our own brains on key or otherwise, how then can we also make it a natural part of the process that you're like exhaust goes out into the commons and that other people kind of curate and build on top of it. So how do you think about we're in, you know, we, we have, 
Wikipedia and we have, mm-hmm. um, you know, twi- Twitter feeds and we have Substack and all that. How do you think about maybe what you imagine is like the optimal version of reality for like, you know, in 2050 or whatever, what would this look like? How would this public epistemic commons and knowledge commons look like? And how do people navigate through it? I love epistemic commons. It's a, it's a few too many syllables. It's a, yeah. a, little, a little too highfalutin because that many people yes. don't know what epistemology is. But still, um, so either we're going to destroy ourselves as a civilization and we'll, be, we'll all be back to punch cards, um, or we'll find our way through the eye of the needle into the singularity or whatever. But, but um, starting with the notion of Wikipedia plus the Google and websites is not bad because they form a mental landscape that we're accustomed to that, you know, everybody, Wikipedia is consistently among the top 10 most visited websites, the only one that doesn't leave cookies. It's this insane public asset that's still managing to survive all sorts of invasions and threats and God knows what. It's, it's, it's complicated, but it doesn't like on purpose because it's, a, it's an encyclopedia. It doesn't like points of view. So for me, it's like, okay, I love the brain because I point to all sorts of Wikipedia pages, like the element carbon, it's a Wikipedia link. You know, if if you had a Wikipedia page, I would be using that as the link connected to your node in my brain, et cetera. But now how do we express points of view and tell stories around that? And Prezi was my favorite storytelling tool until they just did their late recent remake and basically lobotomized themselves. They, They killed off the good feature. I couldn't, I couldn't make it dance anymore like it used to for me. So I dropped it. It really hurt me um, because I love using Prezi to tell stories. And so a piece of this is about what's connected to what. Another piece is how do I tell that story into some compelling way? The part we don't even think about is how do I leave that story behind in a way that other people can go follow the, the reasons I said what I said and what else it's related to? We don't ever get that experience. The closest we get is linky text in a blog post, right? Where some, where a good blogger, and to me, the great bloggers are the ones who have sparsely larded, beautiful little links to other materials that where you're like, oh, that's mind blowing. Now I get why they said this in their blog post. Great. How do we do that more generally? And so I'm calling this thing the big fungus. And if you'll permit, if you go to thebigfungus.org, you'll find a baby website. But the reason I'm calling it the fungus is that um, leaf cutter ants can't metabolize leaves. So why are they carrying leaves into their hive? They take those little leaf bits, hand them off to a subspecies uh, of that uh, of that kind of ant, which mulches up the leaf matter, puts it on a fungus that they have a symbiotic relationship with. The fungus metabolizes the leaf matter, oozes a nectar that feeds the tribe. Happy fungus, happy tribe. I feel like a lonely ant at the fungus face with a particular quirky tool that I happen to like that fits how my brain works. And for 24 years, I've been looking left and right going, where is everybody? This is really, really fun to do. And if we did it together, it would trickle back into journalism, education, science, elections and governance and decision-making. All kinds of places would benefit that don't understand that the world is, everything is deeply intertwined. And if we can, if we can sort of slowly build arguments and, and add evidence and so forth, we might govern better. Yeah, I love it. I think there's, I mean, there's a couple great pieces of that. One is, you know, on the fun piece, it reminds me of one of the, um, 
one of the projects that Root, my like little nonprofit startup studio is working on is called Tweetscape, which is kind of like a superhuman for Twitter. But it's also this like Twitter RPG where these folks, you know, one of the um, founders of the project, this guy, Nick Torba, he loves going down these random Twitter rabbit holes. And he loves hanging out with people on there and he loves talking about AGI and then Anki and then about whatever. And so he, and, and it's fun. And he's like co- co-creating this like cool world out there with these other people. And, and to kind of see it, there's an interesting frame on it, which is to see it as fun, which is instead of say, oh, we need to do the hard work of like, who's going to be the librarian here? Who's going to need to do the stuff that then right. helps the public? You know, it's like, no, 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 this is fun. Like we should do it together. Um, so I think that's powerful. Do you think, I mean, talking about the big fungus and I'm not sure there's an interesting piece of what you're saying here, which is like, yeah, we are these and if I understand it correctly, it's like one way that I might understand your your statement is that we are all these little ants who are moving through the world, doing our own little things. But then we don't have there's no like deep curatorial mechanism, a.k.a. there's no deep um, that there's no fungus that does the processing that then pushes the stuff back out to us. It says, oh, now I'm consuming good stuff. Instead, all that I consume is just like what the corporations want, a.k.a. here's a bunch of junk food, you know, junk, um, junk news, whatever. So is that. Is, am I hearing you correctly? And how, how should that, is it a curation process that needs to happen? Is it a scaffolding process? What does the fungus push out for the happy ants? I think all of the above. Um, the, the curation is really deeply important, but the scaffolding is likewise important because right this minute, I can't tell you where that fungus lives. One of, my, one of the open questions in my head and in my, in my brain, my outboard brain is, where is the fungus? Right? Because I can point to Wikipedia, but it's a canonical centralized website. It behaves like a website. I know exactly how the servers work, et cetera, et cetera. This fungus needs to be very distributed and, and reliable in some way that allows us to share what we know, right? And then the curation is, is kind of, a, I think eventually, if I scroll forward to the scenario you painted a moment ago, it's a combination of machine intelligence, reliable machine intelligence and human intelligence, building out this space of what's going on in the world, everything from current events to history to, to whatnot. Um, and helping us um, use that really appropriately and add to it so that when I improve a node somewhere in this, in this fungus, um, you come in with a different tool and you happen to touch the node that I just improved, whatever I added is visible to you as best your preferred tool can see it and use it and ditto backwards so that we're all basically building up this body of work. Yeah, I like that. I think that there's and I do agree that there is some role and we're not, ex- we're not totally sure. I mean, the, you know, artificial intelligence has played some very powerful um, modes in this, obviously in terms of, you know, being the, the thing, you know, all Google searches go through, um, I'm forgetting the name of the AI right now, but um, there's an AI that it all kind of goes through that makes sure that it's not, um, or what it's checking for is like spam and things like that. And then, and then same with like all these feeds, of course, that we have are making, are checking for disinformation, all these things. And they're kind of like tuned in a way where they're trying to make it slightly so that like roughly what, like there are less bots and that there are more humans that the information is slightly better. And so I guess, yeah, if you were to be pushing that AI to do something, what would you be, what kind of optimization metrics would you have for it or whatever? Well, there's all different roles for AI in this scenario, all kinds of things from, from being your happy assistant that completes stuff for you, from sending agents out to go hunt down information and bring it back to you, from uh, vetting and you know, checking for misinformation, all the way to composing original work. I mean, I'm, I'm really stunned by GPT-3 and, and Dolly 2 and all the transformer tools that are, that are <clears throat> basically um, 
going to change the way we work going forward just in, over the next five years, never mind 20 years, right? So that's, that's all happening. There's plenty of roles here for, for intelligence. And um, we need to figure out real quick what this thing looks like and how we use it and how we integrate it into our decision making, because otherwise we drown. I love that. No, no, I agree. And there's, yeah, it's funny. It's kind of like the the primary experience for most folks of the information age is just overwhelming, you know, the information flood, like all of the drowning, you know, it's like, okay, having something that, uh, that doesn't get drowned by it, which is some of these, like, and I super agree with what you're saying, which is like these intelligences, these are like, they can, there's so many different roles that they can play. They search for things. What were you going to say? And, and one of the things that's happening is, we're acknowledging that we're drowning the info flood and the answer is turn off your devices. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, but that's a little like, you know, getting rid of the, the, the motor because the motor makes a lot of noise and we got a lot of motors around and there's all this humming all the time. It's like, damn, you know, life with motors is kind of better than life was before motors. Gotta say motors are pretty good. Um, so how do we actually adapt the tools and make it so that we don't drown? How do we temper tune and customize so that it works for us? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great question. I think, yeah, and then, yeah, there's just so many different, we shouldn't just do the Walden ponding. And then there's so many cool options of what these, yeah, go write stuff. Go do, it's like, there's so many great things there. Do you think one one frame that I kind of come at this from is, uh, I'm currently writing a book on what information wants. And I think the idea is just thinking from just like genetic information made the whole tree of life and then mimetic information uh, like the Dawkins meme, not the internet meme, has now made the tree of ideas and the tree of technology. And so the tough thing is like even with what you're saying, which like Wikipedia is this amazing place that holds public knowledge, which is great. But we still have um, – you know, disinformation, QA non, you know, like a third of America believes or whatever that, that, you know, that, you know, the election was stolen. It almost feels like Wikipedia is going on a separate route than those things. And so how do we actually get, how do we make those things go away? <laughs> um, yeah, it's hard. Um, part of the, part of our problem is that the internet is a zero marginal cost superconductor for ideas, which means anybody has ideas. Uh, complicating that is that a bunch of fringe humans uh, have figured out how to weaponize that process and to use it against us to undermine trust. So very intentionally undermining trust in journalism, in science, in elections, in the electoral process, in one another and people who don't look like them, etc. And I will add that journalism and science and others haven't done the best job of policing themselves. So there's plenty of gaps you can exploit to say, hey, look, they did this bad thing. So just throw the whole thing out the window right? We can't actually throw the whole thing out the window. We need to fix these different sorts of things. Um, so I think that there's a, there's a gigantic opportunity to figure out how to kind of mend these institutions. And it involves a series of propositions like working in the open, right? Um, and maybe um, whitelisting trusted sources so that when something comes in over the transom and it looks, it smells a little funny, it gets tagged with a little red dye until you know that it came from a trusted source. And in the meantime, it's like, no, nah, no, nah, not going to buy that. Right. Um, I would, I would love, for example, for my Twitter feed to be tagged up with, Hey, we discovered that this is that this is the misinformation you forwarded, you retweeted. Right. I think that that would be a great public service. And most people's Twitter feeds are public. Why doesn't somebody create that so that you can basically say, hey, you're at 5% or you're at 55% of known bogus info that's going through? Um, there's also a bunch of really interesting uh, initiatives that are trying to figure out how to, how to clamp down on this. But another, another factor in the problem is that 
the platforms where most of this misinformation uh, sort of makes its way around the world at super high speed uh, uh, are funded by the advertising model, which is an addiction model. Um, so my remedy for Facebook, should they ever be brought up for antitrust or other, other fixes, would be how do we get Facebook to redesign itself around citizens instead of consumers? Because when we're treated as consumers, you're busy dumpster diving my data so that you can manipulate me by analyzing the data and telling me what I'm going to buy next, which I don't even actually need. When you're working for me as a citizen, you actually want me to have a shared memory so that I can make the next policy decision better so that my kids will learn more, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, like, like just the incentives and the goals completely flip around, right? So how do we do that? I don't know. Because... Um, we live in a world where people with a consumer platform frame of mind will get a whole ton of money really fast and will kill off any less lethal, less invasive technology that's out there in the world. So in some sense, the accelerator process of, of Silicon Valley and VCs works to our detriment, right? Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, ideas get to float really fast because look how much money they get. Yeah, right. And the healthier alternatives just died on the vine. Yeah, I think that that's actually a really interesting, it reminds me of um, the idea of an anti-portfolio, which is like a, a subset of this idea, which is like, oh, you're a, a venture capitalist who could have um, invested in Facebook, but you didn't. And then, oh, you're sad about that. And nobody publishes those. But there's a different anti-portfolio, which is the anti-portfolio of, hey, we exist in this VC-funded ecosystem, but there's all these other things that died on the vine. And luckily, we had Wikipedia somehow make it through, but essentially nothing else has made it through. You know, RSS and all these other things have just kind of like, been, I mean, RSS is still around, but like there is, so thinking about that as kind of, and it's funny because yeah, for us as Root, we actually just had this big uh, call day of like, should we t be a for-profit, like we'd be a public benefit corporation. And then it's great because there's this actual like risk adjusted funding ladder for, you know, these for like not for profits, but for nonprofits, it's really hard. But we actually we're going to try. We'll see if it works. But we're trying to do the harder thing, which is like, no, we're going to be a nonprofit and we are going to um, try to be part of this new ecosystem that creates this new funding ladder for these nonprofits. And also, um, you know, is part of this new future of like generosity and people being able to give to these nonprofits. Yeah. What do you think about? um Yes, I guess like, yeah, that that's a whole set of things. And you, you also brought up a really, I mean, the citizen frame, I really love even that frame is just really helpful. Um, and then the other thing you talked about, which is to have a score for people, I think is really smart. And that's uh, Jonathan Haidt was just talking about it recently, too. Where it's like, for a given person, you're just like, look, are you like, because people need to, we need to be non anonymized. And then you need to say, hey, if you're a person who's just forwarding all this bad stuff, there has to be some kind of negative you should, feedback. You should, you should glow in the dark somehow, right? There, yeah. there needs to be marker die. It's like it's like the dude who does uh, glitter bombs for for porch pirates. Yeah, it's like yeah. can we do that with spam? That'd be great. Um, Kickstarter is a really interesting uh, model here, and unfortunately, there aren't that many great models. But they started out as a normal Silicon Valley startup, but then became a, a personal uh, a public benefit corporation and a B Corp, and so on and so forth. And like their investors took a turn, right? It's, it's really, really interesting. If you want to go tomorrow and start a Silicon Valley style startup, the road is paved with gold bricks and um, lawyers, case law, financing, uh, everything is just there. Everybody, it's, it's super conducting. It, everybody knows how to do that. You want to do something that's more ethical uh, or more concerned with commons and things that don't function well under markets and VC. And 
it is DIY all the way. The road is really rutted and bumpy. Um, you have to invent a lot of stuff. And like I, I was part of a small group that wanted to become a multi-stakeholder cooperative. Guess what? Not available. Um, closest thing we could do is go across to Washington State and become an LCA. And I'm forgetting even what LCA stands for. Uh-huh. Um, and then a friend of mine has gone deep down this rabbit hole and decided that um, uh, that steward ownership is the right model, which goes back to like Germany and a bunch of other places where you have a, a, a nonprofit that owns 100% of the shares of a for-profit. So these two business entities are completely well-known entities. The reason to do this, because I hate both of these kinds of uh, structures, but in this way, the rapacious instincts of a C-Corp are completely untrained to the mission of the, the in, in the US of 501c3. Um, that's interesting because on top of this platform, you could then build for benefits and, and open source foundations and a bunch of other stuff, but it's complicated. That is definitely not simple. And then just to come to, to complicate matters a lot, there's a bunch of people who are saying, ignore all that bullshit, just build a DAO and sell NFTs, you know, float NFTs. And the crypto world is going to solve this. And it's like, oh man, all I see on crypto is like bros trying to flip tokens to make a lot of money. I, I, I see a few people trying to rebuild civilization and that's really cool, but boy, there's, they sure seem to be in the minority. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, that's a funny, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said there. I think, you know, I'm more personally bullish on the kind of web three world. And I think just like, it's kind of just like you find th- those few, I mean, I, I'd say it's like, yeah, 80% people that are 80% speculation, 15% like, um, you know, religious folks or something, or, you know, and then, and then 5% really interesting, you know, smart. Want them to succeed. Want them to succeed. Yes. But alas, it's only 5%. It's only 5%, which is, which is tough. But the crazy thing with crypto is that it's just like the, um, it's a self, you know, you're making, you're printing magic internet money. And so it's like, when you think about these different. the dollar. I, I, yeah, but I think, I guess what I'm saying here is I think that a lot of the world of, um, a lot of these public open source worlds, it's been hard for them to bootstrap their processes. And I think that the crypto world, um, the po- the negatives of having printing magic internet money is true, but the positives of being able to use that to bootstrap these networks that are formed by the public is, is powerful. For sure. I mean, I love the fact that NFTs can include smart contracts that will send money back to the originator, or the original seller of the NFT, because... Second sale of any book or painting, uh, you know, the author doesn't get beans, gets nada. So the idea that a comp- that a comp- that an organization trying to build, rebuild the commons could in fact benefit from somebody paying sixty six million dollars for an NFT, which if they want to be a collector and and bid up the, like the baseball card, I'm cool with that, as long as they don't expect that to privatize the asset, right? Yeah. If the asset stays in the public sphere and they want to be famous for spending a bunch of money backing it, I am completely down with that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, talking about this, this, you, you talked about trust there and it's actually interesting because before the show, you and I were talking about one of the things that got me into your brain was this article on like uh, abundance of trust and, and how, you know, I guess from my lens, we're moving towards this reality, hopefully of, you know, the abundance economy or whatever you want to call it, which is everything will be abundant and everybody, there'll be a fully automated luxury communism is Yay. another frame of this. Yeah. Um, it, but tell, and so there's like the abundance piece, but there's also the trust piece. And so tell me more about how you think about trust. Yeah. There's a lot to say here, obviously, and we don't have all that much time, but um, I, I, I came up with an equation a while ago call, uh, that's scarcity equals abundance minus trust. Because in so many cases, there's actually natural abundance, but it's not 
simple natural abundance. It's created through humans collaborating. It's a little bit like uh, when the first explorers come to the Americas and to Australia, it turns out. Uh, they arrive and it turns out the entire landscape has been kind of cultivated by humans and is highly productive. Uh, and they're, they're busy herding animals into some area. They know when the river's gonna, when the fish are gonna run in the rivers, so they set a weir. They sprinkle seeds somewhere and then come back a couple seasons later. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening uh, on all three of these continents. And then Europeans manage to squish out and stamp out all of this abundance and impose a whole series of really dysfunctional ideas about ownership and property that are now religion uh, to a bunch of people who have decided to build society on, on those models. And I'm not saying we should go back to like, you know, migrating three times a year as they do in Mongolia on the steppe, but I am saying that there was a lot of wisdom there that, and, and abundance there that we got rid of. And we replaced it with things like intellectual property overprotection, right? So people don't know that the current copyright term is 95 years after the author's death for, corporate, for corporate works. And the original copyright term, the statute of Anne from 1610 was 14 years renewable only once to a max of 28 years, and you had to apply. But as of 1973, I read something on a napkin, it's covered in copyright, right? That's insane. Like for me, books and PDFs are where information goes to die. And part of what I'm trying to do is liberate that information so that we can benefit from it to improve society, right? And that's why I think this trickles back into education and everywhere else. 99% of ed tech startups when you stop paying them their $10 a month, you lose everything you built on the platform. What? What? what really? What's yeah. the deal there? So how do we, there's a, so much to fix. It's really kind of fun. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. There's a, imagining the future in which there's less thing to fix. Oh, we're so bored, but then actually things would be nice. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, that I, um, it's always a good reminder. Every time you hear the, you can literally hear the copyright rules. I could hear that every day and every day I would just be like, want it, to it, like. Your mind explodes every time you hear the facts. It's like, <laughs> wow, how did we get there? Well, we, we have Disney to, to thank for it partly. Yeah. You know, there's so, a reason, so, it, there's a reason one of those acts was called the Mickey Mouse Copyright Act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do you think about, so I, so that gets closer to this idea of trust, but tell me more, how, what, how would you define trust and how does it, yeah, how would you define trust and how do we make it abundant? So there's lots of different definitions of trust. Um, there, the ABI model, um, uh, ability, benevolence, and intention. There's a bunch of different models that, and one of the useful separations is to separate cognitive trust. Uh, from affective trust, meaning cognitive trust is, do I think you're going to, you, you can do the thing you just threatened to do or promised to do, and do I think you'll carry it out? Uh, it's the reason that we know that Dr. Evil will always try to kill Austin Powers, but will probably fail. It's the reason a lot of people voted for Donald Trump without necessarily liking him as a human. Uh, a big reason. Affective trust is, do I kind of like you? Do I have this feeling like, like and, and do I have this feeling that you're acting in my best interest, not yours? Right? So that, there's a whole bunch of complicated things there. Um, I set aside the models. I don't find the models all that useful for practical advice. My practical advice is to look around and realize how much of what surrounds us was designed from the assumption that most people are not trustworthy. I call this design from mistrust. And my, my antidote to that is designfromtrust.com. Go to the website and you'll find my TEDx talk and a, bunch, and a few essays and, and some other things which I haven't turned into a practice or a consultancy, but it's kind of, kind of wants to be something like that. It's not as straightforward a practice as design thinking, for example, 
because you can't just strap this onto any organization in press go. It's about trust. And lots of organizations are committing breaches of trust constantly. I think of advertising as full, full of breaches of trust, right? Um, and so, so how do you, how do you sort of rinse those things off? How do you redesign yourself from trust? And then the reason I can say that this is a possibility is that I discovered dozens and in fact, hundreds of movements around the world from traffic calming to open source software and the design of the internet uh, to micro lending to uh, pattern languages, a bunch of stuff that is in fact designed from trust, from an abundance mindset. Um, and as Lynn Ostrom will tell you from her principles for governing a commons, these things aren't just sort of born brightly into the world. This isn't, you know, this isn't easy. Um, this takes a while to learn and then propagate and then maintain. It takes effort. But that effort pays off because what you get at the other end is abundance without all the costs of locking people out, protecting, prosecuting, everything else you have to do to protect an intellectual property regime. Yeah, interesting. It's um, so, so A, yeah, it's always cool. Even though the frames aren't that helpful, I always just like to hear that's like the power of your brain is that you've have these like there's the ABI, there's the cognitive versus effective. And so like I can even I can like taste the space repetition <laughs> software in there where I'm like, okay, yeah, like that's that's nice. Um and then the other piece is, you know, I think yeah, designing for mistrust is what we're in and designing for trust. And for us as again, coming back to root and how we're trying to do this as an org, it's just like coming from a place of abundance and from a place of where we're just like, um, like when people sign up for a fellowship, we just say, look. Um, uh, like usually people pay on average a thousand dollars, but you can literally pay some people pay zero. Some people pay 3000. You could, you just, you choose the number. You just mm -hmm. totally choose it. And so we're just totally trusting them. It's like where they're at. And like some people come back and be like, yeah, I'm like an engineer at some Silicon Valley, whatever. Here's $3,000. And some people right. are like, look, I am a student in India and I'm 17. And so I'm going to pay zero. It's more than I'm going to make next year. Exactly. Exactly. And so, but yeah. like mm -hmm. trusting the person there and be like, look, you're going to do, how is, how is traffic calming an example of designing from trust? So back in 2006 or 2008, I met Hans Mondermann, who has since passed away. Um, and followed him around. He gave me a tour of uh, Drachten in the Netherlands and showed me how they were redesigning streets and intersections to um, lower the accident rate, keep the throughput. And it was all built on people making eye contact at the intersections. So he said, look, these affordances we put into roads that we think increase safety, traffic lights, lots of, lots of signage, et cetera, et cetera, in fact, reduce safety because what happens is we stop paying attention. We're in a Mercedes three series that'll do like 70 miles an hour without even making a whisper of a noise. Of course, you're zipping along. So what we need is a roadway that reads properly that there is a children's playground right here. And if you go fast, you're going to kill people. Or look, here comes a roundabout and there are bicyclists and pedestrians and you need to slow down and match speed. And when you're matching speed going through intersections, half the crowd isn't stopping waiting, even though nobody else, nobody else is going the other way. It's really efficient. So that, that's, that's one way. And, and the trust is this reliance, one of the signs that you've hit a system that's designed from mistrust, sorry, that, that's actually designed from trust, is you go through this two shits problem. Uh, the first oh shit is, this is impossible, it could never work. It, your, your sphincter tightens, your throat clenches, you're like, oh my God, this is terrible. What idiot invented this? Then you try it out and you see that it works and you have the second oh shit is like, oh my God, this is working really well. How do I, and, and my wishful thinking here is, how do I get more of this? How do I get more of this feeling that I have suddenly fallen into like a collaborative little loop 
And the people who just passed in front of me, I was polite to them. They were polite to me. And we all zipped on through what used to be a, a, a traffic nightmare stop kind of thing, for example. Uh, open source software, you know, go to GitHub and you'll see like, like, I don't know, millions of people, I'm assuming at this point, sharing code, writing books, doing a whole bunch of stuff um, with fork and pull, which is like a very interesting trust-based dynamic, right? That has rules about it. And it has software, a process and some rules, but it really like GitHub blew away SourceForge because their rules dynamic and software was different from the assumptions made on SourceForge in ways that were better for trust. I love it. Yeah, I think I think that that is when well, I think the traffic calming example is so great, which is part of it. It makes me think about like, like fragile versus anti-fragile systems where it's like you have one where you're just like, let's just like pump the world full of like there's these hard rules and you can go 75 miles an hour. But if you go 85, we're going to get you. But 75, go, 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 go. And then you've got to stop. And then what you get is like, everybody's just going so fast and there's no like dip and dive in the system or whatever versus like if you have people who are just making eye contact kind of flowing through it's a lot more resilient um and then also the the two shits thing i think is a really good frame for this the first one is like i'm doing something against the current paradigm of neoliberal capitalism or whatever you want to call it and then the second one is like and that's actually fine it's really like, working i like it yeah um, i like it i don't know why it's working but it, it, it smells good and you know how do i get more Exactly. Um, so the um, let me, as we wrap here, I want to ask a, a, a key question. I like to ask a lot of my guests, which is what? So you are clearly a um, a, a hyper, and you chatted about. This, I mean, you're a you know, hyper curious person. You know, five hundred thousand notes. What was the catalyzing moment in your childhood that actually kicked off this feedback loop of like, oh, I can actually go out and learn things and learn more, and and that, yeah. Um. Good question, and I think there's several different things. One is clearly my dad. Uh, my dad was curious about everything. He was he was like a, a man's man without being a macho man. So he taught me swimming, shooting, carpentry, aerodynamics, uh, electric you know electrical work in the home, uh, like a whole series of stuff. We built stuff, made stuff, played golf together, the whole thing, without ever telling me that boys don't cry and, and all that kind of thing. But he was just uh, just this open book for for curiosity, and I just inherited that. Then I have a series of what I think of as aha moments in my life and career where I hit, I was lucky enough to hit a person or a girlfriend or somebody like that who exposed me to some new thing, which blew my brain open, right? So an early girlfriend exposed me to the thinking of Alice Miller, who is a Swiss psychotherapist who wrote the drama of the gifted child and has a lot of things to say. She helped invent family systems therapy. And there's a bunch of things about trust sort of, you know, welded in there. Um, a housemate said, hey, come with me to this graduate seminar when I was at, uh, at Penn, and I discovered Russell Acuff, one of the founders of Systems Thinking. And he blew my mind open with like, oh, wait, what? And, and he could speak in 10th grade language about like pretty sophisticated system dynamics that made a lot of sense. So I have a lot of those incidents, many of which I chronicle in my brain. So I have, I have like a thought for my aha experiences. Cool. That's, And I think that that yeah, that I mean, those moments are crucial where, where people just like you randomly luckily get pilled into something. And then, yeah. And the key here is not to ignore those moments hmm. and also not to let someone else talk you out of them. The key, like my last 30 years of progress on ideas, I credit to realizing that the word consumer made me really uncomfortable uh, when there were a couple of briefings I can name and point to you know, back in the 90s, where I was like, wow, I feel awful after that meeting. Why? 
One of them was with the new CEO of women.com. And I sat down eager to talk about the glass ceiling and misogyny and online this and that. And her, one of her first sentences to me was, my job is to sell women to advertisers. And she was being completely honest with me. She wasn't lying at all, but my heart broke. Right. And I was like, there's something deeply, deeply broken here with the consumer model. That's more than just like, you know, a term of art. Yeah. So, so when you hit a moment like that and little kids are really good at this because little kids will say, why does that happen? And we're like, well, it just happens. Just accept it. Learn to live with it. Right. It's like, no, not really. Pay attention. I love that. I think, I think there's two versions of that. One of them is when you hit something that is, it's kind of like when you hit something that makes your insides get really excited, then go down that, like, whoa, Russell Acoff systems thinking, allow yourself to do that. And then, and then remind yourself that that was a big moment and that, that like that catalyzing thing was exciting and, and whatever. And then there's another side of it, kind of the, not the curiosity side, but like the ethical side, which is like, okay, remind yourself when your gut was kind of like, you're like, I'm not really sure about this um, and follow that. And beware of the dark rabbit holes. Like, I, I think that like children and vaccines were a huge vector for QAnon. There's a lot of moms who were sort of anti-vaxxers. They were worried about what they were doing with their kids. And then that suddenly became a, hey, just join this bigger group, which is, and then suddenly they were like wearing the Q and going to, to MAGA rallies. And it's like, that's really dangerous. So following your curiosity is good and, and listening to your body about excitement on these things is good, but you've got to have your bullshit filter like ready. Um, you really have to be critical about some of these things. So I don't mean follow everything that floats by, um, but don't dismiss stuff that is instinctually weirdly uncomfortable. There's a weird, I don't know how to describe that. I, I need to find better language for that because uh, I'm not sure that those two experiences sound that distinct. Yeah, that is interesting. It's like, oh, this rabbit hole, good. This rabbit hole, bad. What's the difference between good rabbit? rabbit? Bad rabbit. Don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, beautiful. Well, Jerry, this has been uh, a lovely conversation. Thank you for it. For anybody that is curious, um, you can go and check out uh, Jerry's on Twitter at Jerry Mikulski, which is G-J-E-R-R-Y-M-I-C-H-A-L-S-K-I. Um, and then he also has, check out, I mean, go to there, check out Jerry's brain, check out also Open Global Mind, which is this community he's building around, you know, the building second brain, Rome research adjacent stuff. Jerry, is there anything else you want to say to our listeners, either a place to go or a thing to think about? Um, those are all great links. Thank you very much for that. Uh, thank you for the invite for this conversation and for the fabulous questions and conversation. I love that. Um, and Anybody who wants to help build this shared memory space, uh, get a hold of me and say, hey, let's talk or how do I join the conversations that you're in? I host a bunch of standing calls every week where we're doing this. We're trying to figure this out. It's, it's hard fun, um, which I think, I think hard fun is like this really important thing. Kids love hard fun. Um, they, everything doesn't have to be like light and amusing. They, they love thorny questions, but, but fun is really important than everything. Long ago... Um, I, I think that like work, play, and learning were like one Venn diagram circled. Like they were like one thing. We went out on a hunt and we learned and we were laughing and singing and then we came back. And then somehow we managed to separate those in our lives. This is when you learn, then you go to work, then in the evenings you play, and in our days somehow. And we need to remix them. We need to make it so that the things we do for a living are actually always teaching us and really fun to do. Um, so anyway, this is a, a way to do that. Love it. Yeah, hard fun. Uh, slide into his DMs or email him. Uh, so thank you so much again, Jerry. And thank you, listeners, for coming. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.